This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name is Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. In episode 32, you learned about managing your people with the one thing to boost productivity. If you missed that, make sure you go back and check that out. In this episode, buckle your seatbelts because this is one of the best interviews I have done in a long, long time. The man you are going to meet today has achieved nothing short of of extraordinary results. Uh, I think he would self-admittedly say that, you know, many years ago, there's no way he would have ever perceived that he could grow a company to this size. Uh, He started a company in the nutrition space called Quest Nutrition. Today, it is worth over a billion dollars. He has successfully hired his replacement to run the company. Now he gets to focus on really changing the narrative in the media space, sending a message out there that is positive that will help impact the mindset positively for future generations to come. And that company is called Impact Theory. Today, we are going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about developing the right kind of mindset. We're going to talk about developing the right types of habits. We're going to talk about bringing a higher level of personal accountability into your life. I promise you, if you commit to listening to this episode with intention, with an open mind, you will receive tremendous value. So with that, let's get into my conversation with the co-founder of Quest Nutrition and the CEO of Impact Theory, Tom Bilyeu. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen, They're chef-created, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Well, first I was introduced to your products. Uh, I was in search of a really good tasting protein bar that was not a candy bar <laughs> and, yes. and got turned on to Quest and, and fell in love with it. And then uh, I heard you being interviewed on a mutual friend of ours, Mike Dillard's podcast, Self-Made Man. I'm going, all right, this is a guy I've got to get to know. Um, I'm very close friends with Ryan Moran. So when he was showing me his speaker lineup for his event and I saw your name on there, I'm like, all right, I've got to make a point to connect with you when you get out here. So I'm uh, glad that we're finally able to record this and, and bring some value to our audience. Nice. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So for people who are not familiar with Quest Nutrition, why don't you go back to the beginning and tell the story of where the idea came from and, and we'll we'll take it from there. Sure. 
Uh, so in many ways, Quest was a company that was born out of misery. My partners and I had built a successful technology company before that. I actually started as the copywriter there, uh, but they told me not to think of myself as a copywriter, that I could have any job I wanted in the company. I just had to become the right person for the job. And flash forward uh, eight and a half years later, by the time we finally sold the company and I had uh, made myself an equity partner and was the chief marketing officer, but really just emotionally had come up bankrupt. So um, had been really doing all that in pursuit of money and found that I was living the cliche of money can't buy happiness. I was making more money than I'd ever made in my life, but just really, really felt unfulfilled. And that forced me to, to turn inward and had a moment of crisis and realized, man, I just cannot do this anymore. I cannot spend my life chasing money. And I want to do something that feels amazing now in, in this moment today, it makes me feel alive, ignites my passions. And so I actually quit. And uh, I went in and said, look, here's your equity back. If I don't cross the finish line, I don't think I should get anything for this. Um, but I'm going to go do something that makes me feel alive. And, and they said that they felt the same way, actually. And so we set a very near-term goal to hit some revenue targets. And if we didn't hit them, then we would sell the company and we would build something that was entirely predicated on delivering value. That was something that we could be really passionate about, believe in, believe in the product, and that we would have fun doing even if we were failing. Mm -hmm. And rethinking of it like that, like what would you do right now today, even if you were going to fail and you would still love it? And so for three very different reasons, the answer ended up being Quest Nutrition. And uh, it just, it, it really was interesting because we weren't thinking about money. And from that, we were thinking about, you know, what, what can we do to really deliver value to the customer's life, to reprioritize the way that we do things, all based around what delivers the most value instead of what returns the most profit. And it's ironic, especially now in today's hyper-connected social world, doing that and actually deprioritizing money you end up making way more money. And so the greatest marketing vehicle that we ever had was we actually wanted to help people. And so putting that first and foremost um, in our minds, and this was, we started conceiving of the company in 2009. So in 2009, nobody was really talking about social media. So we thought, well, they were talking about it, actually, I should correct myself. They were talking about it, but they were just saying it's a huge distraction. Like, you know, why are, how's Facebook ever going to be good for business? And what we could see was that it was really just a megaphone. And it gave people a global audience within minutes of an interaction with you. And if you gave them reason to say something positive, they would say it. And if you gave them reason to say something bad, they would say that. So we really um, just went into it with this thinking, you know, we could use this to build community and connect them with each other and really provide ongoing value. And it just blew up. So you, you said something that just struck accord with me so deeply. Uh, when I first moved to Austin to start this company with Gary and Jay, they told me the list of things they were assessing me on. One was the ability to lead with revenue. I had to deliver $100,000 in 90 days or less. And the thing that got me here was that at my core, I stood for bringing value to other people in every interaction I have, whether it's a conversation, an email, a phone call. Subconsciously in my mind, I'm wondering, how can I bring value to this person? I show up here the one thing that got me here, bringing value, was the first thing that I threw out the window. And I focused on driving revenue. Was very successful at it in the first year, but woke up one day realizing, uh-oh, if I keep going down this path, I'm going to undermine the brand that Gary and Jay established with the book and had to make a pivot. That's the one reason we're, we did this podcast is I knew I could, I could bring more value. And so I, I love... 
it's easy for people to um, to hear this. And I think a lot of people who are climbing that corporate ladder not realizing that it's leaning against the wrong wall because they're just chasing the dollars. It's easy for them to go, oh, easy for you to say, Jeff. Easy for you to say, Tom. But to hear it for you, even back then when you're making great money, to put all that aside and say, no, 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 I'm going to start from scratch and we're going to come from value. What's the valuation of Quest today? <laughs> uh, just over a billion dollars. Okay, there you go. Um, so there's um, there's the proof, people, and and I'm, you know, I'm very familiar with your brand. But talk a little bit about the hard decisions you've had to have made when it came to choosing ingredients, when you had to sacrifice profit for quality, when you really had to stick to that value, or that that that, that corporate value of bringing value first. Yeah, uh, and you're right on the money with the places that it really rears its head is ingredients. And, you know, it would have been a fantasy to make the highest quality product and really bring it in at a low cost. But, you know, the the reality is that virtually everybody in the industry is making the decision to to take ingredients where the cost is low. And because of that, higher quality, more expensive ingredients never get a lot of traction, which means that they stay expensive. No economy of scale. Right, exactly. So that's one of those ironies that if everybody just got behind it and said, you know, we want the highest quality ingredients to also be the most ubiquitous, that everyone was using them, then you do, you get the economies of scale because people all the way down the supply chain are optimizing their systems. But because very few people ever go for the higher quality stuff, they remain expensive because nobody ever has to optimize for them. So it's it's this weird catch-22 of, you know, if, if just like one sort of generation, not even, and I don't mean generation like a 30-year generation, I just mean like five years. If for five years, everybody just said, all right, this is it, this is what we're using, the cost would come down dramatically. And so that was really what we wanted to, to be our gift is sort of a weird word, but our gift to to the industry was, hey guys, look, like if we all get behind this and really change the the entire industry, the entire food delivery chain, then the costs are going to come down. And what is really expensive today won't remain expensive forever. And so I'm still optimistic that that's where things will trend. And you're seeing more and more pressure from from consumers to to really like for food companies to really start doing the right thing metabolically and to to move away from just marketing message because there's a lot of things that are popular now that are way more marketing than they are truth and I think that people are more and more people are waking up to that every day so we held ourselves to the metabolic standard so we would have people eat it and test their blood and so that was our really our barometer and and we didn't look at price tag um, we just looked at metabolic response. So go go into a specific instance where here you are faced with a tough decision. You have what matters to you guys, which is bringing value to your customers, bringing high quality ingredients. And you're on the other side, you have chasing the profit. And, and, and I'll preface this by stating a quote that I heard, and I wish I could remember who said it so I could pay him proper attribution, but I don't. So sorry. But um, your values aren't your values unless they cost you something. So what was a time when you had to really associate a cost in order for you to live your values. Yeah, so there was a huge one for us. So we introduced an ingredient that was called isomaltol oligosaccharide. 
to the industry. <laughs> I mean, they, say was, that again. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, IMO for short. That's probably there a little go. bit easier. Um, so IMO, it existed, but like not really in the health and fitness industry. Um, and just not a lot of people were using it. And so we brought it into the industry and it was it was a big win. And um, it's since been just adopted by virtually every protein bar company out there. And what we realized was over time that there was something that was even better than that. And so we migrated over to that. Now, of course, and it's a fiber source. So IMO is a fiber, a liquid fiber, and we moved to a new liquid fiber that's better for you metabolically, meaning it has less of a blood sugar response. And we were really, really excited about the new ingredient. But of course, it was like way more expensive. It was way more expensive and harder to work with. So it was like a double whammy. But we just came back to, from a metabolic standpoint, it's just it's so easy to see. You can have a person eat IMO, you can have them eat the new ingredient, which was soluble corn fiber, and it's just like a no-brainer metabolic response difference. So we migrated everything over to the new ingredient, and because there was a significant increase in cost, obviously our profitability dropped, and then also just Going through a reformulation change is always super, super dicey. So that was something that we were really proud of. Migrating to that, it's um, just overall a much, much better ingredient, but definitely costs us profitability. Mm, okay. Let's go back into the story of Quest. So you guys, you, you, you at least established this pillar that you're going to come from value. You're going to serve the highest quality ingredients. You're putting the customer first, even if that means sacrificing profit. How the heck did you guys scale? I mean, I remember you saying you grew like by 57,000% in one year or something ridiculous. Not not quite in one year, but yeah, 57,000% in three years. Okay. Yeah. What led to that kind of growth? What was the one thing that actually helped that? Well, oh man, so tough to say just one thing. So there were three things really, I think, that led to that. So one was the product was great and it was metabolically real. And so that was hugely advantageous and tasted great. And so there wasn't anything else out in the market that can compete with it from that standpoint. Um, two, we were able to manufacture that at scale because when we first made the bar, we went to a contract manufacturer, went to a bunch of them actually, and said, hey, uh, we, we're marketers. We don't want to make this, but we think we have a new formulation. We want you to make it. And they said, it can't be made. And what we realized was they were right with one caveat. It can't be made on the equipment that exists commercially today. But if we were willing to engineer our own equipment, then it could be made. And so that was ultimately the decision that we made. So where everybody else hit that same roadblock and then altered the product, we hit that roadblock and altered the equipment. And that was a huge breakthrough. And then the last thing was we were social before it was cool to be social. And so that just, there was all this pent up demand for companies to really begin to be authentic, to connect with people, to build communities, to leverage social media, to be content studios, to be putting things out into the world that said, this is who we are and just connect with people on a whole new level. And so you put those three things together and it was just explosive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For those of you, I think it was back in episode 29, you heard a webinar that I did with Ryan Moran and we were talking about the five investments you can make as a business owner with the highest ROI. One of them was building an audience. And people haven't thought of it that way, but Ryan has done it. Uh, we're doing it. Mike Dillard has done it. And just like you said, treating yourself like a content company, just putting value out there into the world, helping them realize that you're more than just a product. You, you, you know, 
you can actually help transform people's lives. They begin to know, like, and trust you. And then they want to do business with you. And that is a huge game changer that I still don't think enough people are, are, are getting yet. Totally agree. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your work ethic. Because I see your Instagram post at 4.07 a.m. where you're, you're showing me your biceps. Very nice. Um, but uh, you know, it's very clear that there's something there. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I really don't think I'm one of the smartest guys around. And I don't think that I need to be. I think that if people meet minimum requirements, that really, while intelligence is super valuable, working your ass off is a lot more valuable. And so I think that there's three ways that you can really um, apply yourself, and that's to work hard, work smart, and work long hours. And um, smart may be the hardest one to control, but working hard and working long hours, like that's totally in your control. So uh, I very much make sure that I do them, uh, all three whenever possible, and certainly hard and long hours, um, that's just where I applied myself. And you know, in the beginning, when I really, I finally switched over from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, that's where I had to put all my energy into getting better was just to, to work hard, work long hours, to understand that there was a chasm of skill set between me and people that have achieved the things that I wanted to achieve. And the only way I was going to cross that chasm was by gaining the skills. And the only way I was going to gain the skills was by putting in the work. And then when you believe in what you're doing and you're really passionate and you come alive when you're doing those things, it's not as hard to, to really just grind it out and put in, put in the hours. But grit is also something that I just focused on getting better at. And so, yeah, you, you start doing that and improving that and, and it becomes easier and easier to just apply it. Have you read Grit yet? Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. We're, um, we're interviewing Angela Duckworth in, in a few weeks. Oh man, enjoy that. She, I would love to interview her first of all, but just from her book and the things that she's put out into the world, I can tell she's just amazing. You want me to connect you? Dude, I'll take a, a good connection wherever I can get it. So yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, um, I'll make sure to, to make that connection. You said something at the beginning of this episode. This is something that I had written down, but I remember you saying that you're not yet the person you need to be to achieve the things you want to achieve. At the heart of that, is something so special that I think people need to acknowledge, which is um, I think most of us go through life with this version or way we perceive ourselves. We've told ourselves a story of who we are for so long, but it's really tough to read the label when you're inside the box. Inherently in, in that quote is accepting the fact that there are different versions of you. And you're talking a lot about forming the right skill sets, developing the right habits. Is it fair to say that you have looked out into the future identified the type of person you want to become, identified the specific type of habits that you would need to embody, and then took action accordingly? Yeah, no question. What's an example? Um, wow, there are a million examples. So let's start just like with my daily routine. So um, one, as uh, I have a lot of anxiety, and for me, that was learning to control my anxiety felt like it literally, the analogy that I used was without anxiety, I'm Superman. With anxiety, I am, it's like kryptonite. Mm -hmm. So I really have to figure this out because when my anxiety gets triggered, and I understand the brain well enough to know what's happening, literally the blood is leaving your prefrontal cortex. It's going to the fight or flight response. And so you actually are less capable. You actually are less intelligent. And so 
really uh, reading about that, understanding the brain, the anatomy of the brain, what's going on on a neurochemical level, and then figuring out ways to get out of the sympathetic nervous system and into the parasympathetic nervous system, which you can think of as the difference between gas and brake. So if the sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight, the parasympathetic nervous system is rest and digest. And it really is the way that you calm anxiety. So just Getting better at that from reading about the brain and understanding it to um, learning about meditation and employing it to understanding how to diaphragm breathe. I mean, there's like really basic things that you can do and then just actually doing it. And so being disciplined or take the gym. I hate working out, but it's so profoundly uh, effective for not only cognitive optimization, but also obviously the physical side as well. And it's a great way to earn credibility with yourself for being disciplined, showing up, doing something that you don't want to do. And then even the actual mechanism of reading faster was something that I've put a lot of effort into so that I could assimilate more ideas. So I've tried speed reading. I'm really bad at it. And so I finally discovered Audible and I can assimilate auditory information much faster than I can. And they've done studies on this where you can read, I think, something like 200 words a minute. Um, the average person reads 200 words a minute on a physical book. But if you, if the words don't, if your eyes don't move, excuse me, and the words do. So if you just look at one fixed point and then the words flash, then you can read up to 500 words a minute without any additional effort. But since books aren't that way, the way that I was able to get that same kind of increase in reading speed is Audible books and the Audible app actually lets you speed it up. So you start at one point or you start at one, then you go to 1.5, then you go to two, three. And so now I listen to books at um, at 3x. So I'm able to get the information very, very rapidly. Uh, and that, that's been a big thing. But you have to push yourself and practice just like anything else. And I mean, you know, the the skill set, how to be a leader, how to manage people, um, how to manage my time better. It's like all of this stuff is skill set. Well, and I think just you rambling all of those off that fast just goes to show you are a consummate student and you are constantly sharpening that saw. Very true. And and I will say that, you know, you'd want more proof for the people who are listening. Look at Gary Keller. I mean, if you had to ask me to describe him, I'd say he's a student and he really, really shows up in the world every day that way. He has his models and his systems, but every day he's studying and he's trying to figure out how he can break the model so that he can reinvent it all over again. Yeah, that I really hope people hear that because that is one of those things that it's so risky that as you create these models for the world that they become rigid and inflexible and you're not learning anymore and you think you have it all figured out. And um, yeah, it sounds like he's really got the right approach, which is always be looking for the ways you can change that and get a more effective model. Yeah, well, even on the whiteboard over here, there's a quote, how do we become the business that puts us out of business? Yeah, super smart. He's, he's always asking, what's that model that's going to put us out of business and how do I go build it first? Yeah, super smart. Uh, you mentioned that you actually hate working out, but you work out every day at what time? So I don't I don't set an alarm. So I wake up when I wake up, but uh, because I go to bed so early, I only get about five to six hours sleep a night. I go to bed at nine. That means sometimes I'm up at two, three in the morning. So and then I just go immediately to the gym. So yeah, there've been uh, days where you know I'm I'm posting at like two thirty, three in the morning, like hey, I'm already in the gym. Um, but more than that's like cool. It's just about going to bed early. So. 
Uh, that's that's my only trick, right? Is just I'm in bed by nine o'clock. That's every day. So we experience this. We have a, a program called Time Blocking Mastery where we show people how to make power habits. And a lot of people want to start getting up earlier, whether it's going to the gym or for whatever reason. Their one thing often ends up being making sure they're in bed by a certain period of time because that makes everything else easier or unnecessary. Talk to me about when you were first trying to establish that habit because I know for so many people, health is a major, major uh, pain point for them. They haven't been able to establish that power habit yet when it comes to exercise or for diet. Take us back to before this was a regular routine for you. How did you make it happen? Well, really... Any change like that comes down to identity. And so I, at the time, really, really wanted to optimize my cognitive performance. And I just realized I'm at my absolute worst when I'm tired. So I just started saying to myself, I'm the kind of person that gets all the sleep they need. Now, the world is going to make it very difficult to sleep in too late. So if you're going to get all the sleep that you need and still make an early morning appointment, then there really is only one option left, which is to go to bed earlier. Now, when I started this, I was sleeping way more. So, because I started this probably 14 years ago, about. So, and 14 years ago, I was sleeping eight, nine hours a night. I've done nothing to intentionally reduce uh, my amount of sleep. I just, I get less sleep now, which is wonderful. I'm, I am literally over the moon ecstatic about only needing five to six hours sleep. Um, but I, uh, I literally sleep as much as I need. And I have a rule that if I wake up and I've gotten less than five hours sleep, I'll lay in bed for hours trying to fall back asleep because I know I perform suboptimally below five hours. So this is truly, this is one of those things. If I needed nine hours, I would get nine hours. Like I, I wouldn't do anything to mess with that because it's just, you, you're going to be less efficient anyway. So you're just better off getting the sleep. So anyway, I'm fortunate at this point in my life that I only need five to six hours sleep. I sometimes get more. I don't have any beef with that. Uh, but it, it comes down to identity. You know, cognitive optimization is so, so important to me. I made that a part of my identity. I repeat it to myself. I make choices based on that value system. And um, because of that, I, I go to bed early. In fact, last night I went to bed at 8.30 uh, because we had to be up really early um, this morning, and I actually ended up sleeping terribly last night and actually did wake up to an alarm because I always set an emergency alarm. So this morning I had to be up at 4.45, which nine times out of 10, I'm, I'm done with the gym by 4.45. But just in case I had one set and I woke up after three hours, so that triggered the rule. I have to try to fall back asleep and it took me a couple of hours. And so um, I ended up getting my sleep, which is great, uh, but it took me all the way to my alarm. So that was a bit of a bummer. But yeah, prioritize sleep, identity. That's how you make big changes. Well, I like how you go to identity because I think there's a, um, I think it's very trendy right now to talk about the hustle, to talk about burning the midnight oil. It's also not sustainable. And I remember Gary in a mastermind talking with some of the top agents about how um, work ethic alone, you know, you can hustle your way to a result, but to an extent it can be cheating because what you're doing is you're cheating yourself out of what it means to live a whole life the truly productive people, the truly successful people hold themselves accountable to doing their work in a set amount of time and being as efficient and effective as possible so that they can enjoy and live their life. At the heart of that basically is this, it's not, it's what, it's what works for you. You said over and over again, I only need five to six hours of sleep. Not that everybody should only get five to six hours of sleep. You have looked internally at your identity and said, what works for Tom and acted accordingly. What works for you, the person who's listening to this? I don't know. Look internal, but just I think it begins with that self-awareness. 
No question. And if you'd asked me that question, you know, seven or eight years ago, my answer would have been, I sleep eight or nine hours a night. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, I would have gone immediately into that book of questions where they said, Hey, would you trade half of everything you owned and never need to sleep again? Uh, and my answer is very much yes. So it's, you know, I, I hated sleep, but just like the gym, if it gets you the result that you want, you got to do it. And I, I hate being tired. So it's like the only thing that I hate more than sleeping is being tired. So it's uh, for me, it's a no brainer. So let's go into that. That co- what did you, how'd you refer to it? cognitive ability? Yeah, just trying to optimize cognitively. This is something that I am getting very interested in. Um, I have been meditating for a few years on and off. I fell off the bandwagon for a serious amount of time. And then and recently, my stress levels just went through the roof. My health was going down. And I, I asked the focusing question, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else is easier or unnecessary. I realized it came down to mental again. So I have been forming this habit around meditation and specifically doing a priming exercise in this morning to not only experience gratitude, but also to visualize my day and me walking through it as the highest version of myself. And oh my gosh, the last 45 days have been absolutely exceptional, which is leading me just to dive even deeper. You know, What are the things I can be doing from a mental performance standpoint to take it to that next level? What has that experience been for you? Well, I also meditate. Um, for me, it, it so I have a morning routine and it really encompasses everything that I do for that. So um, go to bed early. We talked about that. Don't wake up to an alarm. Immediately go to the gym. I find that working out, there is a feedback loop between the body and the mind that just cannot be overlooked. And so even though I don't enjoy the process, I enjoy the results so much that it's, it is an absolute must for me. Um, and then I immediately go into meditation and that was a huge part of reducing my anxiety and really beginning to take control of the, um, the switching from parasympathetic to sympathetic and, and back and forth. Um, so that's been a big deal. And then I do something I called thinkitating, uh, which is taking this sort of buzz. So in meditation, everybody will say, you know, it's, you're trying to calm your mind to not think, to really just focus on the breath and that is how you get into a very creative and calm alert state. But I found that some of the ideas that I was forcing myself not to think about were like incredibly powerful. And so I was like, oh man, like I'm so torn. Do I break meditation and take notes or, you know, like, do I really want to stop thinking about this? And so I found that by carving out time after meditation, when I'm still in sort of that buzz of I'm in the alpha wave state, I'm calm, I'm creative. And I can let my mind wander. And I try to always set it on the biggest problem that I'm facing in business. And I find sometimes I just get these amazing creative connections. Other times it's nothing and it seems like a bit of a waste of time. Uh, but the times where it really comes together and, and for thinkitation, I keep a computer next to me and um, so I can take notes. And that allows me to really clear my mind during meditation and then really take advantage of that state afterwards. And and then the only other thing I do is I keep a list of the most important things that I feel I need to be doing for my business. And right away, uh, first thing in the morning, I go through that. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about thinkitating, which number one, did you trademark that? Um, I, we actually are in the process of <laughs> trademarking you go. <laughs> So yeah. You're a smart guy. I figured you were. Uh, I'm going through a similar experience because I remember reading about how Navy SEALs do a very similar thing. Are you just asking yourself a question? Can you give me an example of a problem? And, and you sit down, you close your eyes. Do you ask a question about it? What does that specifically look like? Impact theory is an answer that I got from meditating. So in thinkitating, excuse me. So it was, what would it take to end 
what I call generational poverty. So I've worked in the inner, inner cities a lot and generational poverty is a mindset. So it's people that have a very limited view of what they're capable of, um, the demands that they can make of the world, the demands they can make of themselves. And that limited worldview becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because they don't think they can do much. They don't strive for much. They don't try to acquire new skills. And thusly, they don't do much. And it seems like, hey, it's really true. And so they pass that on to their kids, who pass it on to their kids, so on and so forth. And so it becomes very hard to escape that. And so I was asking, okay, I'm in a fortunate position. I don't have to think about money anymore. What is me at my most alive? And for me, it's pulling people out of the matrix. It's breaking that limited mindset paradigm and getting people to see that they can do anything they set their mind to. And so, okay, well, I'm only interested at scale. So for me to you know, work the rest of my life and pull 100 people or 150 people out of the matrix, like that just doesn't light me on fire. Like I want to pull a billion people, two billion, you know, like however many people are in the matrix, like how far can we really push this? And so in just letting my mind wander in that calm, creative state, I came across our business model, which is accepting that the way that human beings assimilate truly disruptive information, which is what it's going to take, is narrative. And we are meaning-making machines. And we are able to look at narrative mythology and extract this incredibly powerful meaning, but we're not doing it anymore in a modern context. And why not? And so it was through the thinkitating process that I really began to piece together what has become the business model for impact theory, which is to marry traditional narrative content crowdsourcing and social content to create what we hope is sort of this super methodology for conveying um, disruptive mindset-changing ideology. Okay, now you're striking a real chord with me. Uh, Before I started this company with Gary and Jay, I was in medical sales, and I've always been a student of personal development, but when um, a series of events happened, primarily my income getting slashed by 40%, I realized I needed to make a change. Then I hear the Jim Rohn quote, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Look at my five and say, okay, let's make some tweaks there. Let's surround myself with a bunch of Toms. And so I go do that. I begin to notice certain patterns like they never watch the news. They're hypercritical of who they allow into their circle. They don't surround themselves with negative people. They just, they are so protective of their brain. So for probably three years now, I just, I haven't watched the news because it's complete garbage. So when you're going down this path of how do we share the right type of information that actually helps people develop a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset, ooh, baby, you, you, you got me going. Mindset's a real big thing for our audience. I'm not even quite sure what to ask you about this other than what would you suggest to somebody who is saying, I need to upgrade my mindset. I need to sharpen that saw. What are some practical things that they can do? Um, for me, there's 25 things that you have to do and believe if you really want to get out of the matrix. And so you can go to impacttheory.com and, and see those 25 things. But it it's things like believing um, that you can do anything you set your mind to, doing and believing that which moves you towards your goals, understanding that it's a, a gap in skill set between who you are now and who you need to become in order to execute on your goals. So it's stuff like that, that you start stacking these things together. And it's really all about beliefs and path to execution. And when people do that, and one of the hardest ones is accepting that everything is your fault. So everything in your life is a result of your choices. And if you can embrace that, and the example that I give people is an absurd one, but I want people to understand this is actually how I view my own life. So um, my wife is British. 
let's say that she were home with her mother in the bedroom that she grew up in, doors are locked, the alarm is on, she's safe and sound, her mother is right there keeping a watchful eye over her. And at that moment, a meteorite comes screaming through the atmosphere, crashes into her bedroom and kills her. Whose fault is that? Now, if you ask somebody that blindly, they're just gonna say it's fate, it's nobody's fault, dumb luck, divine providence, whatever the case may be. But for me, the answer is very clearly, it's my fault. Now, the reason I believe it's my fault is because I know that there is a group, I actually even know where they are, that tracks what are called near-Earth objects. I've never sent them an email with ideas. I've never sent them encouraging words. I've not given them a dime of money. And their whole reason for existing is to try to find some way to knock those things off course to make sure that they don't collide with Earth. So I know they exist, and I've done nothing to help. So if uh, that decision should bite me in the ass and my wife get killed by a meteorite, I'm not going to waste time pretending that there wasn't something that I could have done about it. Now, I think the way that I'm playing it is smart because I think the odds of my wife being struck by meteorite are infinitesimal. So it doesn't seem like a good expenditure of time, money, or uh, capital. But I recognize that I'm actively choosing to not engage with that. So I, I use that example just to always remind myself that I'm in control, that I can make a different decision and get a different result. And so because of that, while I may in my life be victimized, I never have to play the victim. And that's incredibly, incredibly empowering. So that that's like the one thing that if I could give people, that would be the thing. You are just striking chords with me all day long. <laughs> um, when I first got clear on the fact that I needed to upgrade my five, I surrounded myself with somebody who, um, if you ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire, he used to he used to run that sports agency in real life. Um, so pretty pretty successful guy. And I remember him saying a very similar thing. He said, "You need to bring a level of personal accountability into your world. You need to get to the point where if you are parked at a red light and somebody comes and slams into the back of you, that the first thing that you think is not what an asshole, what the heck just happened? You think, what did I just do to attract this into my life?" It's really funny that you use that example. So when I first started telling this story, I used to use a drunk driver smashing into you at a red light and people flipped out. Yeah, that's a hot, that's that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I migrated away from that, but yes, I'm totally with you. What, what, what followed though, because when he first shared that with me, and I'm sure some people experienced this when you just talked about your version, um, you feel a level of resistance to it. I certainly felt it like, what are, you, what are you talking about? What did I do to attract this into my life? But when I th- he walked me through, and this was very like, you know, law of attraction, uh, more woo-woo type, but bottom line is, can you bring that level of personal accountability into your life that anything that happens, you ask the question, is my DNA anywhere in this? Like yours? No, you knew it existed. You did nothing to help it. Therefore, you are accountable. Move on and move forward. And my thing is like, even just so if somebody smashes into you from behind, you chose to get in the car that day, you chose to, I used to describe it as you're in a kill box, right? So there's a car to the left, car to the right, car in front of you, you've got nowhere to go. You didn't have to do that. You could have seen that that's a potentially risky situation that leaves you no outs. So it's like, there's just always something different you could do. And it's not to victim blame or anything like that. Like I get it. And you, in that moment, you have been victimized, but it is so much more useful to remind yourself of all the things you could have done differently so that if you're in that situation again, that you can make a different choice. So I'm not saying it to beat myself up. In fact, that's a totally useless approach to take. It's asking yourself, what's your goal? My goal would be next time, I don't want to be hit. So I'm going to focus on the things that I can control. 
and make different choices. Well, and Stephen Covey said it really well when he, in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he said, there's the circle of concern, which is this big circle. Everybody's concerned about all that things in the circle. And at the very middle of that is what we call the circle of influence, the things that you actually can have influence over. Focus on the circle of influence, not the circle of concern. Yeah, very fair. I'm loving it. I love it. Talk to me about focus. Because I mean, you've you've now scaled a very large company. You have been able to replace yourself as running that company to the point where now you're just on the board and you get to focus on impact theory, which is awesome. Most entrepreneurs have shiny object syndrome. They have lots of opportunities that come their way that they want to chase multiple rabbits at the same time. How do you constantly narrow your focus down to the things that matter most? Heartbreakingly. And so it's, I get it, man. I get why people have such a hard time with that. It's like, uh, it, it really is one of my biggest frustrations. Like there are so many things in the world that I'm passionate about that I couldn't possibly do in one life, even sequentially. Um, and you know, there, then if you come down a level and say, okay, there's so many things that I'm really interested in, then I'm now I'm really in trouble. So how do you begin to to really think about it? And I think it comes down to what's the thing that makes you feel most alive? So what's the thing from a neurochemical standpoint that's as close to, if not better than doing drugs and do that thing? And so for me, it's pulling people out of the matrix. And it doesn't hurt my feelings that as I thought through like really, really just based on data, science, what we know about the solution to helping get people out of the matrix is narrative. And that's my first love. So now when I really thought about, okay, what's going to be the next move, the fact that that's all tied together. And it's, look, this was something I've been thinking about for a very long time. Um, So this wasn't like, you know, I just woke up one day and thought, okay, well, let's do that next. It's that thing that like, it stays in your mind. It's the one that isn't transient. It's the one that keeps coming back, keeps coming back, keeps coming back. And then is also an answer to a very big problem, at least for me as an entrepreneur, that's important. So I wanted to tackle the biggest problem that I believe that we face and the most foundational. And I really believe that as a foundational problem, it doesn't doesn't get any more base level than people's mindset. So when I look at all the things that cause problems, it's it really is mindset. It's a fixed mindset. It's God, if you know, homophily, which is like that, what I call school of fish syndrome, where you just want to be around people that are like you, which leads to all kinds of societal problems. And, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it really comes down to his mindset, man. And so I, I knew I wanted to tackle that. I wanted to tackle it in the most efficient, effective way possible. And then the fact that that also happens to tap into my natural um, desires that I, I love narrative. And so there's five realms of narrative you've got. Uh, books, comic books, movies, TV shows, and video games. And you know, we'll sort of throw AR, VR in one of those columns or maybe multiple of those columns. And those are the ways that we really um, assimilate narrative, assimilate the disruptive information. And I love that world and I love being around it. And just all of those things really excite me. So you put that all together and it is the thing like it will... There have been times where I've been so excited about something that I will sleep literally going into bed, letting myself sleep as long as I want. I'll sleep less than an hour and then wake up. And I'm just so excited to get back to working on it that that's when you know, okay, like I'm acting like a freak now. Like I'm acting like a drug addict because I'm so into this. Like I just want to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. When you find that thing, like don't let anything distract you. Well, and I think... Hearing you talk about that, I'm even getting energized just watching you. I immediately <laughs> then think of 
the version of me that existed before I got into business with Gary and Jay. I think of all the business owners who are listening to this, who started a business to achieve some goal, financial freedom, security, whatever it was, but they realize they've just shackled themselves to another job. The person who is an employee who says, that's great, Tom, but I don't even know how to begin discovering that. How would you counsel those people who need to walk that journey to even discover what lights them up? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. So I don't think that passion is something that's handed to you. It's not a lightning rod moment. So the wonderful, the great news is that passion starts as an area of overlapping interest. And then so take two things. uh, Let's take two easy ones. Let's say video games and making a lot of money. Okay, cool. Those are two of your interests. Love it. Let's now look at where those intersect. So we're going to be dealing in commerce, like if that's where you want to make your living. So what are the areas of video games that sell? How can you plug yourself into that? And then, but at first, it's just an interest. It isn't the thing that makes you feel most alive. And I promise money is never going to be the thing that makes you feel most alive. So you put those two things overlapping and now start to gain skills in that. So um, if you want to be, depending on what area of video games you're going to be in, it's going to be dictated by what that second um, thing is. So if if making a lot of money at that is your thing, then you're going to need to ask, okay, it's video games, but it's video games where it overlaps with being able to make a lot of money. So there's going to be ownership involved. You're going to need to um, be able to uh, profit every time that video game is sold. So you're not going to be an employee in a video game company. You're probably going to have to go find partners. You're going to have to develop a game. What are going to be the sort of smallest barrier to entry to that? Maybe it's going to be apps, something like that. So you're going to find that and then you're going to start to get good at it. And you're going to see like, as you get good at it, do you fall more in love? So think of it like magic. There's two types of people. People that when they learn how the trick is done, they're even more thrilled And then there's people, when they learn how the trick is done, the magic has completely evaporated. So as you go down that path, you'll see either, ooh, I really like this more than I thought, or no, I don't. If you like it more than you thought, then keep going, keep developing mastery. And it's really the gaining of mastery that will ultimately turn that interest into an area of passion. And without gaining mastery and actually getting good at it, it's just never going to be a passion for you because there is something about the human desire to gain mastery, to get good, to be able to express yourself through a skill set, to be able to do something other people aren't capable of. Like being capable of a championship performance is intoxicating. So if you're capable of a championship performance, you're able to outperform people in an area that you were deeply interested in. That is literally the definition of a passion. It will begin to make you feel alive because you get that confluence of just neurochemistry where you're feeling good about yourself. You're learning and growing and developing, which is just something humans innately want to do. And then you're able to execute against that and develop a lifestyle. You're able to take care of yourself, things that are going to make you proud. And so you put all of that together and that's that thing that people call passion. And so um, the alternate thing, if you try that and you're like, oh my God, like this is drudgery. I hate everything about this. Like I am never going to make money in the gym. I'll just make you that promise right now because I, I don't like being around it. I don't like the smells. I don't like the sights and sounds. That for me is an end to a means. But man, you can take a mean selfie. Yes, I, I, you have to. If you want to build an audience, let me tell you right now, at least as of today, and I really hope this changes, but as of today, you got to be able to take a mean selfie. That's just, that is the nature of the game. Um, yes, well said. So that, that's how I think of it. That's how I'd counsel anybody. I think most people are trying to search their memory banks for that thing that they've forgotten makes them feel alive. It's a process. Yeah. Well, and I'll summarize what you just said. It first and foremost starts with identifying your areas of interest. You commit to living a life of mastery in that area. As you walk down that path, you 
identify, am I still interested? Am I losing interest? If you lose interest, you pivot. And interest over time plus that mastery leads to that passion. For sure. Awesome. Awesome. And, and you know, as you were saying, I, I'm just kind of having a flashback to everything that we've talked about over the last 45 minutes or so. And I realized you have discussed all three of the commitments from the one thing. First and foremost, to live a life of mastery, to commit to something and become masterful at it every single day. The second is going from an entrepreneurial mindset to a purposeful mindset because most people, you know, they, they, they try to climb something, they hit up against that ceiling of achievement, they get discouraged and it's just, they keep butting up against it. But when you become purposeful is when you start to look at your mindset, your skill set, and ultimately you blast through that ceiling of achievement and it continues to raise the bar. And the third is living the accountability cycle. Being the type of person who accepts accountability for everything in their life and every day holds themselves accountable to showing up as a higher version of themselves. And it, did I prep you on any of that? No, man, not at all. And oh, that, interesting. That's really great. <laughs> so, you know, I love doing these types of interviews for people because um, to reach out to someone like yourself who I respect because of number one, you're just a good guy. Number two, you stand for values that I believe in. And number three, you've enjoyed an extraordinary level of success. I would say you are where I want to be. So to be able to reach out to somebody like you, have this type of a conversation and realize that so many of the things that um, I am working on mastering, you've already demonstrated and look at the results. So for that, thank you. Dude, my pleasure. And and it sounds like you're well on your way. I mean, just understanding that that took me so long and so many like bashing my head into a wall. So I uh, I think it's awesome that you put this stuff out there and and I, I really do think it helps. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And uh, the the all the kudos go to surrounding yourself with the right people. I didn't make this stuff up. I just have been very intentional about getting into relationship with the right people. And in this system or in this situation, Gary and Jay handed me their playbook. I just get to struggle with it and wrestle with it and try to live it. It's amazing, man. So I think it was Socrates, I'm almost certain, that said, uh, this is a paraphrase, but um, read so that you may learn with ease what other men have learned through great hardship. Say that one more time because that was good. It's a, again, it's a paraphrase, but read so that you may learn with ease what other men have learned through great hardship. Mm, I love it. Well, Tom, where can people learn more about you? At Tom Bilyeu, I am uh, hyperactive socially, and my last name is spelled B as in Bravo, I-L-Y-E-U. And uh, you can find me on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all of them, and I'm, I'm there daily. So engage with me, especially during our Facebook Lives where I answer questions. So anything you want to know, come on, hit me up. Nothing's off limits. Uh, we'll go into it. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, man. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Tom Bilyeu. Hopefully you'd enjoyed this as much as I do. You know, I'm sitting back from this episode and the, the big thing that is just resonating throughout me so much is this idea that success leaves clues. When I look at what Gary and Jay put in the one thing, the reason it has resonated with so many of you is because it's surprisingly simple and we all know it leads to those extraordinary results. I then look at a guy like Tom Bilyeu. I mean, guy has grown a billion dollar company. He is young. And now he's already focusing on his next empire with impact theory, talking about solving a real problem when it comes to generational poverty, that, that, that limited, that fixed mindset that is handed down from generation to generation. And I look at some of the things that were at the core of everything he does, adopting the right type of mindset, following the path 
to mastery, being the type of person who doesn't just hit up against a ceiling of achievement, but shatters that ceiling of achievement. In the book, we call that going from E to P. And then living the accountability cycle. I mean, you heard it. No matter what the situation is, he's always looking to take personal accountability because if he's accountable, then he can do something about it. He's he's never going to be victimized. He's never going to accept the role of being that victim. Now, here's what I want to share with you. Maybe some of what we shared today really resonated with you. And maybe some of what we shared for you today, you felt resistance toward. If so, that's okay. My suggestion to you would be to acknowledge it. If you felt resistance in any area, sit with it and ask, why? Why do I feel resistance to this? I, I, I can understand if some of you, when we were talking about accountability, he's talking about the meteor hitting, I'm talking about being rear-ended. I felt resistance to that the first time I was introduced to this theory. But then I sat with it. And I started asking, what's, what's the commander's intent here? What's the silver lining? What's that story that I can take from this and weave into my everyday life? If you can begin to work through some of these ideas, begin to wrestle with them, adopt them in your life, you begin to change your perspective. When you change your perspective, that's when you begin to see the world in a whole, whole new light. This is why I am constantly reaching out to people like Tom. This is why I was so committed to getting into business with Gary and Jay, because I knew the story that I was telling myself about who I was, what I stood for, what I could possibly accomplish was limited based on my perspective. It's tough to read the label when you're inside the box of your own life. The reason we don't just do solo interviews, the reason I reach out to these people and have these conversations is because I want to shred that box that you are stuck inside of. I want to expand your mind in terms of what you could possibly perceive to be possible in your world by surrounding you with people who have already achieved that level of extraordinary results. That is why we do this podcast. It is to bring value to you, to help shift your mindset just one episode at a time. So as always... I have a call to action for you because consuming content is great, yet it pales in comparison to the value you will receive if you back the content with action. What is the one thing that you can do from this episode such that by doing it would make everything else easier or unnecessary? What's just one thing that you heard in here that really resonated with you that you feel compelled to take action on? Now go do it. And in the spirit of accountability, share it with somebody. Let them know that you are going to take action based on something that you heard. Ask them to hold you accountable and see what happens. We do this because we care about you. I mean that more than words can describe. We genuinely care about bringing value to you. So with that, thank you for your time. It's your most valuable resource and you just invested it in us. Hopefully, We gave you an incredible return on that investment and we will continue to do so in the episodes to come. If you want to make sure that those episodes automatically get downloaded to your phone, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. And if you haven't left us a review yet, we read every single one and they mean the world to us. Thank you. We'll see you in the next episode.